Moments will come along in the midst of difficulty that will cause us to doubt. We may start strong in a season of struggle, only to find ourselves feeling lost as the days go by when we don't sense an obvious kind of improvement in our circumstances. One of the amazing things is God's Word is full of stories like this that teach us what we need to know when we are going through the heart of struggle. Hi, I'm Pastor Jim Luby. Welcome to The Faithful Race. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3, which are familiar verses to many of us who have studied the Word for a while, but it has instruction that is vital to the church today. Now, sometimes people ask, what, what does this book written centuries ago have to do with me in this modern time? Well, the amazing thing about the nature of God's Word is that it is unchanging. It is just like our Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's Word is full of examples of real people experiencing real life in all of its messy, thrilling glory. You can go to the Psalms and find the songwriters there singing what we might call today the blues. Wondering if God has forsaken his people when they're surrounded by enemies, when they're surrounded by trouble. We only have to go to 2 Samuel to read of the failures of King David. I love King David because he is described throughout his life as a man after God's own heart. But we also read of these incredible failures that he's experienced. But I believe he was called that because he was, even as he fumbled, fumbling toward what God desired. We only have to go and read Jeremiah. They called him the weeping prophet who writes of his nation, Judah, failing to follow God and being overrun by their enemies in watching helplessly as his people are carried off into captivity. Now, again, sometimes we start off and this sounds like a dire situation and we don't want to soft pedal anything. We know that there are serious, troubling things happening in our nation right now, but As God's people redeemed in Jesus Christ, we also read that it was the psalmist who remember that it is God who rescues. David remembers over and over that it is God who renews. Jeremiah remembers that it is God who restores. Now, that's the Old Testament. That is Act 1, if you will. If we go beyond those writers and look to Act 2, the New Testament, the era in which we live. The author of the book of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. All of God's word points to the need for and the arrival of our Savior Jesus, our great high priest. So it should be no surprise that God's word to his people gives us not only acknowledgement of our occasional feelings of disappointment, of inadequacy and, and discouragement, but it also gives us instructions on what we're to do when we're experiencing it. The word we're going to study, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, from the New Testament passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. The word says, Therefore... Since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. 
Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is an incredible passage, but you may be hearing it and saying, Brother Jim, I... I I don't remember memorizing it that way. What happened to fixing our eyes on Jesus? What happened to Jesus as the author and perfecter? I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, a fantastic English translation. But like many listeners, I learned in the New International Version, the New King James, and the King James Version. So sometimes these sound a little bit unfamiliar to our ears. And truthfully, I think that's a good thing. Sometimes we can become so familiar with a passage that the words don't have the impact that they once did. So hearing it translated correctly, slightly differently with other synonyms for these words, if anything, helps us to zero in on exactly what it is the author was intending, what it was the Holy Spirit is leading you to understand in this. Now, the book itself, if you don't know, was written to first century Christians of a Jewish cultural and religious background, Hebrews. Now, the writer of Hebrews, I would say, lovingly scolds them, those early Christians, for being immature in their Christian faith. And again, you might ask, okay, what's that got to do with me? Well, see if this doesn't sound like a familiar situation in many churches. The Christian believers in that church had watered down the fire of the Holy Spirit that leads to conviction and conversion. Now I said, sometimes that sounds like our churches today. Here's what's going on, because it's not a new situation. The non-Christians who were in the church were grounded in the important traditions of Jewish culture. And I would say they were probably good people by the measure of society, but they were not God's people by the measure of the Savior, of Jesus. So you had one group that was saved in Jesus Christ. You had another group that was holding on to their traditions. And these new Christians were sort of watering down what they knew because they wanted to get along with these other folks. We call it going along to get along now. And the problem was there was really no difference between the radically saved and the merely religious. Church, hear this. There is change when we follow Jesus Christ. There is direction that will be different than culture. That's okay. It's supposed to be. The believers were unsure of letting go of the comfortable and familiar Jewish practices and traditions. But the writer is encouraging them to not just move away from them, but to run. You hear that? Run from those cultural ideas fully embrace and completely commit to the gospel lifestyle. So the writer lovingly scolds what we would call the foot dragging of this group of new Christ followers and instructs them in Hebrews 6.1 to move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ. The people of the redeemed church then were in a dilemma. They held in high esteem the traditions of their culture and were unwilling to pay the price of fully committing to Christianity. It was a break with their religious and social traditions, and more so, 
as Christianity at that time was increasingly becoming this movement that was associated with foreigners, the Gentiles, those who were not Hebrew by blood. Now, the author describes our Christian lifestyle as a race. If you've heard this passage before, you know that. It's famous for this. And the kind of race being described in Hebrews, though, is not a sprint. It is a marathon. 26.2 miles. I always admire those folks that I see in traffic in front of me that have that little sticker on the back of their window that that brags that they're a marathoner. They've run 26.2 miles because I look at that and say, I don't think that's going to happen in my life. I've run a few 5Ks over the years. I I did some distance running in high school, but I've never run a marathon. However, my cousin Charlotte does regularly, and sometimes the races she runs are even longer. Now, Charlotte is about 10 days younger than I am, but she looks like she's about 10 years younger, and I attribute that to the running she does. I spoke to her about what she experiences as a distance runner. And it's uncanny how perfectly her experience aligns with this scripture. When I told her in the course of our conversation that the passage I would be teaching from was Hebrews 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, she said, it's one that's commonly found written on a runner's sole on their shoe. What I learned from her is that training, mindset, and endurance matter to run and and win those great races. And it aligns with what Scripture teaches you and me. First, we have to be running it right. That's what we see in verse 1. In other words, training matters. I have a particular personal soapbox when it comes to our evangelical churches and our Southern Baptist churches in particular. That's my background and training. But one of the things that we have let lapse over the last 50 years or so is training our people. We're excited about programs, we're excited about Sunday school, we are excited about worship, of course, but training, specifically teaching how we apply in a day-to-day manner this Christian lifestyle has been almost non-existent in many churches. But there's a truism that we see supported by data. Churches that train are churches that grow. And they grow both in knowledge and understanding of Jesus first. And then the outcome of that is they multiply in numbers. But it does not happen overnight. And many churches give up when they do not see immediate and overwhelming results. Charlotte told me that to prepare for a marathon, it usually begins 16 to 20 weeks before the date of the run. That's her usual training cycle for a marathon. She said, I slowly increase my long distance run each week until I can run 20 or 22 miles for a long run. My first marathon was the Orange County Marathon in May 2014. It was part of a Beach Cities Challenge. My first half marathon was the Long Beach in October 23, followed by the Huntington Beach in February of 14. And the race company sent me an email with a double dog dare to double my distance and finish the third race in the challenge with a full marathon. Okay, so what do we learn from that? The cloud of witnesses that's described in verse 1 speaks to those who have run the faithful race before us. 
Now, sometimes people have this idea that there's a great crowd of all of our loved ones who have gone before us as believers, almost as if there's a stadium, we're running around and they're cheering for us. Truthfully, it's a, it's a sweet idea, but I don't think scripture supports that. Because we understand that when we are in the presence of Jesus, we are going to be transfixed. We are going to be so focused in our eternal worship and just basking in the glory of our God that everything else will be left behind. Now, the Greek word that's used here for witness is martus. It's spelled M-A-R-T-Y-S. And it's translated as witnesses. But the word comes, and you can see very easily, it comes into English as martyr. Because in the early church, we had those faithful witnesses who were faithful even unto death. So much so that the word martyr came to be known as somebody who would die for their faith. And maybe more importantly, be willing to live in that way. Now, you may not be asked to physically die for your faith. But if you are in Christ, you are instructed to live in the spirit of that. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Hebrews in this beginning part says to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles. Now understand this. This is not one instruction. It's two. There are two audiences that are being written to in the book of Hebrews, those who are the redeemed church in Jesus Christ and those who are the merely religious hanging out around it. There are two instructions here. The hindrance, the encumbrance, anything that stops us, this gets a little personal, okay? But they understood it as literally referring to fat. Nobody likes it when you talk about this. I don't like talking about this either, but that's what we are describing here. In the ancient games that led to our modern kind of Olympic games, the athletes would, well, they were naked. And part of the judgment was how well they had developed their physique. Might make us a little uncomfortable now, but we understand the idea. When we see an athlete who has worked and trained, we recognize here is somebody who is living a committed lifestyle. In other words... For you and me, believer, get off the couch, get fit for the fight, and get ready to run. Now, we know fitness doesn't happen overnight, but the decision to get fit and work toward it does. The purposing in the heart, that does. But what about the second instruction, the sin that so easily entangles? Well, that's referring to the attitude of the non-believers. And to the church, the word is, don't get caught up in it. If it's not glorifying to God, if it's not helpful to your race, it's not for you. Don't shrink back. Don't give up. Don't give in. So how do we avoid these things that would stop us, these things that would hinder or encumber us? Well, in verse 2, we see the instruction that, that is most famously translated as fixing our eyes. In other words, your mindset matters. You and I as believers are responsible for three things in this life. 
our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And like an athlete training, we should feast on and crave the best things of God. If you saw an athlete who did not take their diet seriously, who did not take their training seriously, you would look at them and say, are you really in this to win it? 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 says, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a great instruction on what we're to be about, but you are to keep growing. Sometimes I see and hear what we might call t-shirt or bumper sticker theology that says, I'm not religious, I just love Jesus. And while that's a good basic place to start, we understand that there are purposes. Yes, we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we are religious. We have our mindset to do the things that are commanded. Because the writer in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with a message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature those whose senses have been trained, there's that word, to distinguish between good and evil. So what do we feast on? Well, obviously, the Word of God, knowing it, understanding it, and most importantly, living it. While training to run, what you consume, what you do leading up to the race is physical. Charlotte also said that mindset is everything. She said that running the race is completely mental. I have to push past the pain and the feeling of despair. Crashing is normal. She said, I crashed during my last race. At mile four, I thought about catching an Uber to mile 21 and cheering with my friends that were set up to support me. It's about learning not to give up and trust that you can do it is key. Believer, hear that idea from the physical around us echoing the spiritual we're reading. Don't give up. Persevere. The difficulties we are enduring are temporary. We're promised and we believe that there is much, much more to come. Because you're not just saved from the penalty of sin. Praise God. You're not just saved from the penalty of sin. You're not just saved from hell. You see, I have this problem that I see too many believers are treating their relationship with the living Jesus the way that they treat their relationship with their insurance salesman. That salvation is just fire insurance, a get out of jail or get out of hell free card. Your salvation is so much more. We worship the living Savior who has paid the penalty of sin who has broken the back of death, who has redeemed and restored what was ruined, who is returning, who reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity because he is eternal. And hear me in this. He knows you. The same God that spoke the universe into existence knows you. Why, oh why, would we fix our eyes Would we center our hearts, allow our passions, our love, our thoughts, our words, our actions on anything less when everything else falls short of his glory? Believer, run your race in faith. And keep that faith. 
It's one of those phrases that came out of the 1960s that really does have a lot of meaning and a lot of importance. Keep the faith. In other words, your endurance matters. Your consistency matters. But truth be told, we fall short. We see in verse 3 instruction that is important for us, and, and it tells us what we need to know in this, that Jesus was dealing with difficult things. He is the source and perfecter of our faith, but for the joy lay before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we consider he who endured so much and did not sin, we know because of the Holy Spirit living in us, it is possible. Endurance matters. We're still learning and growing. When I spoke to some fellow believers this past week, some of them are well into their 70s and 80s. And I reminded them that so long as God grants you a beat for your heart and breath for your lungs, there is more race for you to run. There's more to learn. There's more to know and live in godly wisdom. And if we think we've arrived, we're fooling ourselves. My cousin Charlotte said as she studies and and learns about this endurance, she said, I stay motivated from self-reflection. I analyze each race and training cycle. I look for where I fell short and what I need to do to improve because I find that I never really reach my full potential. There's always a point where I know I can do better. Do you hear that? That even an experienced marathoner is looking to improve constantly. Believer, that should be you and me in our run. But here it also is not that different than what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12 through 15. He wrote, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching toward what is ahead, I pursue my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. Paul wrote that in the spirit, in understanding, recognizing that even though he is the one who wrote so much of what we see as our New Testament, who helped us to develop so much of our theology, our understanding of God, here he is, the leader of the pack, so to speak, saying, I don't think I've even come close. And that might intimidate you. Sometimes we look at somebody who has been doing this for a while and see, wow, look how good they are at this, and we become intimidated. So in a moment of reflection, what scares you about running your race? Charlotte told me one of her fears. She said, I remember having a fear of how I would be able to walk to the car at the end of the race. But I followed that with a question, asking her, how do you feel when you finish a race? And she said, I feel a crazy sense of accomplishment. I cried after my first and after every time that I have reached a new level of improvement. 
In New York City, I sat and bawled in Central Park for about 20 minutes. Well, why? Well, she hit a personal best. She finished that race well. It was her personal record. Just to give you an idea of how much she improved, in the 2017 LA Marathon, her time was 6 hours and 16 minutes on the nose. A year later, in the 2018 New York Marathon, she brought it way down to 4 hours, 53 minutes, and 17 seconds. The 2019 Long Beach, she improved further, 4 hours, 45 minutes, and 47 seconds. But when she sat and cried, it was after the 2019 New York Marathon, 4 hours, 34 minutes, and 47 seconds. Down from just two years before, 6 hours and 16 minutes. What was the difference? She told me, I began training with experienced runners, others who have demonstrated how to train and how to run the race. You see, here is an easily correctable, correctable failure within the modern church. You see, training matters. Walking alongside those who can teach us, we, we say disciple us in the church. Our spiritual race is no different. We need people around us to teach us. We need people to help keep us accountable. We need people to help us train and to learn how to evaluate to do better. And remember, the difference too is we have the perfection of Jesus to point to as our perfect example of how to run the race. Verse 3 says, we consider him who endured such opposition. Jesus didn't quit. Jesus didn't lay down his cross. Jesus didn't scream from the cross, Father, forget them. He cried out faithfully, trusting in God's goodness, Father, forgive them. How deep is love for us? How deep is love for you, believer? You see, when athletes begin a race, there are often large crowds to cheer for them at that marathon. And there are often many thousands along the way to cheer them along, offering encouragement. But always the greatest cheer is at the finish line, where the voices call them to finish well. But we also have to remember that the race is measured from the end, not the start. My prayer for you is this, that you live your life with the end in mind, knowing that you are faithfully running your race to the glory of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. I'm Pastor Jim Luby, and I hope this helps you as you're running the faithful race. <laughs>